Welcome to On The Record, a guide to English law, the legal podcast brought to you by Glazier Solicitors. Welcome and thank you for listening to On The Record, a guide to English law. I'm really pleased to have Sarah Schofield with us today. We're going to be talking about disciplinary procedures and how to handle some tricky situations that might come up during the process. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Bethany. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Fine, thank you. Uh, Before we get going, would you like to just introduce yourself, tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Sarah Schofield. I'm an employment solicitor at Glaziers. I've been qualified nearly, gosh, 10 years now. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, So yeah, I predominantly act for employer clients across the whole range of employment law issues. Do also advise individuals from time to time. Obviously, over the last few weeks and months, we've been incredibly busy dealing with queries surrounding initially the furlough scheme. Firstly, what on earth is furlough? And then how do we implement it? And it's changed quite a lot over the last weeks and months as the government have kind of fine tweaked the scheme and given us slightly changing rules. Unfortunately, we're now getting to the point where the furlough scheme is going to come to an end at the end of October And as a result of that, lots and lots of employers are now looking at their workforces and deciding whether they think they can continue with their current workforce levels or whether, unfortunately, they're going to have to start to look at making some redundancies. So I think for all employment lawyers and HR professionals and business owners, the next few weeks and months are going to continue really to be to be very busy, I think. I can't imagine the types of questions that you've been getting completely different from probably what you've had the last 10 years. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, as I say, we've had a lot around furlough, understandably, because it was new to us. So we've had to spend time getting our heads around that and then disseminating that information out to our clients. And, you know, I think because so many people have been put on furlough leave, we're now having some issues trying to coax some individuals back from furlough leave. So that's presenting its own challenges as well for um, business owners and, and HR professionals, where people, rightly or wrongly, don't really want to come back into the workplace. So that's an issue we're, we're also having to, to grapple with at the moment. I guess we'll have to see how that unfolds. And we still have a couple of weeks left. So I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about furlough a little bit later on but we are talking today about disciplinary procedures we're looking at some of the more tricky situations that might come up during the procedure before that could you just talk us through the disciplinary process and why you know someone might be involved in it yep absolutely so disciplinary proceedings generally when I'm talking today I'm talking about misconduct type cases rather than performance or capability related proceedings because you tend to deal with those slightly differently so when it comes to misconduct there's essentially three key stages in the process so the first stage would be your investigation where you appoint somebody to to do precisely that to investigate to gather evidence speak to witnesses and to ultimately make a decision really on whether they think there's a case to answer at the end of the investigation if there is then your disciplining officer would then be appointed and they would invite that person into a formal disciplinary hearing to put the allegations and all the evidence to them and give them an opportunity within that formal disciplinary hearing to respond. 
at the end of the meeting, then the disciplining officer would take some time away to, to consider matters and decide whether it's appropriate to issue some sort of formal sanction, whether that's a written warning, final written warning or dismissal, as the case may be. And following that kind of second stage, individuals will have the right to appeal if they want to. If they're not happy with the decision at that point, at that stage, you then appoint an appeals officer to deal with that appeal and schedule an appeal meeting and give an outcome in writing at the end of that process. The sort of process itself, how long does it usually take? Obviously, each case is different and it's it's a unique situation for each individual. But is it the sort of thing that on average takes three weeks or three months? It, it's really variable as you've identified yourself. And it really depends, I think, upon the um, allegations, really, um, and also the evidence that you have because the extent of your investigation will largely be led by the evidence you're able to obtain. So, for example, if somebody's been caught red-handed stealing from their employer, then your investigation is probably not going to take a great deal of time. Whereas if you have a scenario where you suspect somebody has been stealing, but you don't have you know, um, CCTV footage, for example, showing them with their hand in the till taking the money, then your investigation is likely to take longer because you're going to have to perhaps look into things in more detail than you would ordinarily. As I say, you've got a bit of a smoking gun scenario. And the same really, I think, with the disciplinary stage and the appeal stage, it really depends upon the individual employee and whether they seek to challenge the process or challenge the decision um, and whether they want to appeal or not. So it's very, very difficult to put a timescale on it. What I would say to most employers is don't rush through it. Don't cut corners, particularly with the investigatory stage. I think sometimes um, employers can lose sight of quite how important that first step in the process really is. Because what can happen, and I've seen it happen quite often over the years, is that they'll do a very, very brief um, investigation because they're so keen to move on to what they perceive to be the really important bit which is the disciplinary hearing dismiss for example and then they'll face a, a tribunal claim from the individual who who maybe argues the dismissal was unfair and tribunals are very interested in the investigatory stage and if you haven't done that properly then actually it's a bit like a, a, a kind of house of cards and everything can come tumbling down on top of it. And it won't really then matter how brilliantly well you did the disciplinary or how fabulously you know, well you handled the appeal, because if your investigation wasn't good enough, everything else just won't fall flat, essentially. So, yeah, I think it is important that um, employers understand the value that really tribunals attach to the investigatory stage and that they don't lose sight of that. Um, perhaps in their eagerness to get through to what they perhaps maybe wrongly perceive to be the most important part, which is the disciplinary hearing itself. That's a great piece of advice. So looking at these tricky situations, what if somebody gets sick during a disciplinary process? How does that impact things? Yeah, so it's not uncommon once a disciplinary process has started for employees to go off sick. It could be once you've had the investigatory meeting or it could be once they've got notification that they need to attend a formal disciplinary hearing. I think in those situations, there can sometimes be a bit of a tendency for employers to panic a little bit and think, right, well, they've sent in a fit note now, signing themselves off for X number of weeks. 
I can't do anything now. So everything just has to go on hold until that person feels well enough to come back into work. And I think it's really important that employers understand that that is not necessarily the case. The first thing to think about, really, whenever you're dealing with disciplinary procedures is the ACAS code of practice on disciplinary and grievance procedures. And that essentially is ACAS's guide for employers and employees for handling disciplinary and grievance situations in the workplace. So it's always a really good starting point when you're dealing with any disciplinary or grievance process. And what the ACAS code says is you need to deal with disciplinary matters without unreasonable delay. And I think it's important to remember that actually, in most instances, it's generally not in either party's interest for matters of a disciplinary nature to drag on and on. And I think what can happen is that you'll get a fit note that might cite something like stress or anxiety. And that could be directly related to the disciplinary process itself. And therefore, in those situations, it really can't be in the individual's best interest for that process to just be put on hold for a protracted period of time, because common sense would suggest that that's likely to just add to their own stress. You've also got to think about the impacts of any delay on other people who might have an interest in what's being investigated or, you know, on the disciplinary hearing itself. And of course, you've got to think about your evidence and the longer something goes on, you know, we're all human. Witnesses, memories will fade over time. You know, physical evidence, if you if you need something like CCTV footage, very often those systems will auto wipe footage after a period of time. So just bear all those things in mind. And as I say, don't panic. And I think another really, really important point is that just because somebody is not fit to come into work to do their their day job, does not necessarily mean that they're not fit enough to engage in a disciplinary process. The two are not necessarily the same. In some instances, that will be the case, but not always. And we very often in situations like this would refer an employee to occupational health to get an assessment on whether that person is actually well enough to engage in the disciplinary process and whether there's any adjustments maybe the employer could think about to help facilitate them coming in and engaging in those in that process. So it could be something like suggesting that a meeting's held off site at a neutral location. It could be suggesting that the meeting's done by way of video call, which, you know, the current climate we're all getting really familiar with. Or it could be, you know, suggesting we'll do it over the telephone or we'll do it in writing. You can present written submissions, etc. So there's lots of options, I guess, that would allow you potentially to still proceed with the process, even if somebody is not fit for work. If the occupational health report does confirm that that person can engage in the process, then you're free to continue. As I say, subject to any recommendations they might make on adjustments to the process. In that situation, if someone still refuses to attend or fails to attend, then you may ultimately find yourself in a position where you've got to make a decision based on the information that you have at the time. Generally, that's not the best for either the employer or the employee, but you know, you can't always wait indefinitely, particularly where you've got an occupational health report that says that that person is actually well enough to take part in that process. And of course, the individual will still have the right to appeal any decision that might potentially be taken in their absence. If the occupational health report confirms that actually they're not fit enough to engage in the process, that's fine. You can, you know, you can confirm to the person that, look, we've got the reports. It's saying that actually you're not well enough at this stage to participate. 
not a problem, we'll put the proceedings on hold until you are well enough to engage in the process. And then it's a case of carefully monitoring the situation. What can happen in those scenarios that employers sometimes can forget about the individual and can sometimes forget about the disciplinary process. And you don't really want to do that, I don't think. So you're better monitoring it and perhaps after a certain period of time, checking back in in terms of, look, are they still not fit enough to take part in this process? Moving away sort of from sickness, what happens if somebody raises a grievance during a disciplinary process? Again, I suppose similar to the sickness situation, it's not uncommon for individuals when they're faced with disciplinary proceedings to issue or to submit, sorry, a grievance. Again, if you look at the ACAS code of practice, that makes it clear that where somebody does raise a grievance during the course of disciplinary proceedings, you may decide to temporarily suspend the disciplinary process. So it doesn't say that you have to do that. And it also makes the point that actually if the grievance and the disciplinary issues overlap or they're related, then actually it might be appropriate in that situation to deal with them both concurrently. So you could appoint the same person to deal with both. I think from an employer's point of view, the important thing if somebody does raise a grievance during the course of a disciplinary process is to carefully look at the issues that are raised in the grievance and the issues you're investigating as part of the disciplinary process and decide whether you think it would be appropriate to temporarily suspend the disciplinary whilst you investigate the grievance or whether you don't think that's necessary and actually they can continue running at the same time. An important point I think here to remember is please do not just ignore somebody's grievance and do nothing about it. Sometimes it can be tempting to just pass it off as somebody being difficult and somebody trying to delay the process. That may prove to be the case but you can't make that assumption. So deal with it properly in accordance with your grievance policy because if you don't do that you'd be in breach of the code of practice. Now, breaching the ACAS code in and of itself isn't a freestanding claim you could an individual could bring in the tribunal. But what the tribunal do do is if they make an award in favour of an individual at the end of, say, an unfair dismissal claim, they can increase that award by up to 25 percent to reflect an employer's unreasonable failure to follow the code. So it can have pretty significant implications for an employer. So please, please do not ignore any grievance that you may get during the course of a disciplinary process. It may be slightly frustrating and you may feel that, you know, it's not necessarily a legitimate complaint, but don't ignore it, deal with it. And once you have dealt with it, um, if you did suspend the disciplinary process, you can then resurrect it and get on with things. So you've mentioned the need to have meetings with the individual that's going through the process. If that person asks to bring a family member to the disciplinary hearing, does an employer have to agree to that? In terms of the right to be accompanied to disciplinary hearings, the law states that an individual can bring either a trade union representative or a work colleague. It doesn't extend beyond those two categories. You do from time to time have individuals like this person who will ask to bring somebody else like a family member. As a general rule of thumb, you don't have to agree to those requests. However, there are some circumstances where it would probably be appropriate to agree. So, for example, if somebody 
maybe doesn't have English as their first language, they may ask to bring somebody along who speaks their native language and their in and English so they can maybe translate for them. It may be you have an employee who perhaps has some form of learning difficulties and struggles maybe to comprehend when they're being asked questions on things. Again, for those individuals, you may consider it appropriate to, to grant them the right to bring somebody aside from a trade union rep or a colleague. And also, and more commonly, I guess, where somebody may have a disability and it could actually be a reasonable adjustment that you're obliged to consider making for them to bring somebody else along. Sometimes you'll get individual employees who might ask to bring a legal representative to a disciplinary hearing. Almost always the answer to that will be no, do not agree to that. You know, as as lawyers, we tend to quite like to have argument and dispute and it can make things really unnecessarily contentious. So generally, no. There are some circumstances where it may be appropriate to allow somebody to bring a legal representative. So again, if they have a disability, it may be that an occupational health doctor considers it's a reasonable adjustment to allow those people to bring a legal representative with them. Very, very occasionally, there may be a contractual right. That's more common with professionals like NHS hospital doctors. And finally, one sort of scenario where the courts have said that really it, you ought to allow someone to have a legal representative is where the allegations are career ending. So that you know, it, the cases that have sort of um, formed that view have tended to involve, again, NHS hospital doctors or teachers where, you know, if the allegations are upheld, it may mean they can no longer practice in their profession. We've got past the idea of bringing, bringing somebody to the meeting. What happens if somebody asks to record the meeting? Yes. So again, this is something that I think individuals are increasingly asking their employers to do. I think in light of modern technology, we all have smartphones now. It's really easy to make a record of a meeting like that. I think there's a few points, I guess, that I would flag up for employers. And the first is you have to you have to think about this issue in advance. You don't want to be caught unawares by somebody just turning up to a meeting ready with their phone or some other device to try and record the meeting. So you have to decide initially, are you happy for individuals to record meetings or not? In my experience, I think lots of employers have a bit of a knee jerk reaction to this one and will insist absolutely no, 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 not having it. I think if if you take a bit of time to think about it, it can actually be really beneficial to have a recording of a meeting because, of course, it means you've then got an unequivocal record of what's been discussed and there can be no dispute about who said what. I think if you're minded to allow the meeting to be recorded, it's always a good idea if you as the employer are actually in control of the recording rather than the individual and you can give them the reassurance that you'll provide them with the, the recording at the end of the meeting. If you're not happy for individuals to record the meeting, then that's fine, but make that very clear. Include it in your disciplinary policy so that people know they're not to record meetings. And most importantly of all, warn them what will happen if they were to secretly or covertly record a meeting, i.e. it would be classed as an act of misconduct, maybe even gross misconduct, justifying dismissal without notice. From a practical point of view, at the start of any disciplinary hearing or investigation meeting, remind people 
that we do or do not permit the recordings of meetings. And then the last tip, I suppose, would be where you're maybe deliberating as a disciplinary panel, do it in a different room to where you've had the hearing itself, because you just never know if somebody's got their phone in their bag, the individual's left the room, but they've left the phone on recording, they can capture what you may be discussing we believe is in private but actually may not be if as I say they've got a device recording whilst they've left the room. You mentioned secretly recording what happens if you find out that somebody has secretly recorded the hearing after the fact? Generally speaking if somebody has covertly or secretly recorded parts of a meeting where they're present then I think it's quite likely, if that recording is relevant, that a tribunal would allow that to be admitted as evidence before the tribunal. Where there's been a covert recording of private discussions, for example, like the example I just gave, where the individuals left the room and the disciplinary panel are um, discussing the issues between themselves, generally, a tribunal would be less, I think, inclined to admit that as evidence on public policy grounds because the individual thought it was a private discussion. That being said, there have been a few decisions actually where covert recordings of those private discussions have actually still been admitted as evidence in tribunal hearings. So I'd say that as a rule of thumb, if the individual is present and they're recording, chances are it's probably going to be admitted as evidence. Have clear rules in place. Because if somebody does covertly record a meeting and your rules are very clear that they ought not to, and you remind them at the start of the meeting that you don't permit individuals to record the meeting, then the fact they have would be a separate standalone disciplinary matter on the grounds of misconduct. Sort of last question, moving away from the meeting with the person themselves, looking at other witnesses about the event. What do you do if maybe a witness is reluctant to be part of the investigation? So sometimes you can find that witnesses are reluctant to engage or to give evidence or they'll only give evidence if they can do it on an anonymous basis. The first thing really is you need to understand why that person may be feeling a little reluctant to to participate. It could be that it's quite a simple issue that you can reassure them on and you know they're then quite willing to to get involved. I think as well, it's important that the employee is reminded that they have a duty, an implied duty of good faith and fidelity to their employer, which really means they ought to be cooperating and participating unless they have a very good reason not to. As a kind of similar issue to this, sometimes you'll find witnesses will only give evidence if they can remain anonymous. In that situation, you have to really weigh up the reasons that person may be giving for wanting to remain anonymous versus I suppose, natural justice and the individual needing to know and understand what the details of the case against them are. You also need to have a think about the witness's credibility. So are there any sort of suspicions as to why they may be trying to give this evidence? You also need to try and corroborate what they may be saying with other witnesses who perhaps are happy to be identified and are not so concerned about remaining anonymous. And the ACAS guide to dealing with um, investigations suggests that really you should only be agreeing to anonymise statements where the individual has a genuine fear of reprisals 
from the individual concerned. And if that's the situation, then really you ought to take a detailed witness statement as you would normally and then go through that afterwards and redact anything from which that individual could potentially be identified. And then that is the statement that you would potentially be submitting to the individual. Well, great. Thank you for your time today, Sarah. There's been some great bits of advice in there for employers. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too, Bethany.